0: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app?
1: That dog does not want to be petted.
0: (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
2: From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is the best of free expression with Jerry Baker.
3: Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Benjamin Netanyahu joins me now. Prime Minister, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. You mentioned Iran, of course, then. You've talked a lot about it and there's a lot of concern about it right now here in the United States too. One of the fascinating things in your book is, of course, you recount your various discussions with American presidents, particularly President Obama, with whom you had profound disagreements on Iran. The Biden administration came in trying to resurrect the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that essentially lifts economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for some what I think most of us would agree, would say were fairly minor concessions in terms of its nuclear program. That obviously seems to be going nowhere. What's your sense here of... Firstly, the threat from Iran, as we're getting all this information that it is accelerating its nuclear program, and secondly, what could possibly be done outside a JCPOA-type arrangement to deter them from proceeding with that?
4: Well, first, I think there's a change in Washington as I sense it. I've had direct talks with the uh, U.S. administration, but I sense a change because of the unmasking of Iran's true nature for the entire world to see, courtesy of the extraordinarily brave Iranian men and extraordinarily brave Iranian women who are fighting for freedom, for basic freedoms. And you can see the horrific nature of this regime, its murderous nature, it's killing them in the streets, and yet they stand up and protest for their rights. And I think that's changed attitudes everywhere, including in Washington, and that's good. We have to understand that the nuclear agreement does not stop Iran from pursuing its nuclear weapons program. It's not only because they cheat, it's because that even if they don't cheat, the agreement says that in three, four years, Iran will effectively have, with international approval, unlimited enrichment capability of uranium, the toughest part in manufacturing nuclear weapons. In the meantime, they're developing these tremendously advanced centrifuges under the JCPOA that will allow them to enrich the nuclear cores for 100 bombs. So it really paves Iran's path with gold to a nuclear arsenal, and that's wrong. Now you ask, how can you stop them? First of all, we have delayed them by actions that we took. I don't describe all of them. In fact, I don't describe any of them except one. I sent the Mossad to the heart of Tehran. It raided Iran's secret atomic archive, bought half a ton of materials to Israel, and we conclusively showed that Iran was lying through its teeth. It was seeking to develop five nuclear bombs already 20 years ago, and it's seeking to do so now. How do you stop them? Well, we set them back, in my judgment, about a decade, but we haven't stopped them. There's only two ways to stop a rogue nation from having nuclear weapons. That is a combination of crippling economic sanctions and a credible military option. When I say that, you should be prepared to use the option if deterrence doesn't work. There have been five rogue states that have sought to develop nuclear weapons. The first, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, was stopped by a military action by Israel. The second, Syria was stopped by military action by Israel. The third, Libya under Gaddafi was stopped by the threat of a military action by the United States. The fourth, South Korea, North Korea, rather, had signed the non-proliferation pact and so on, didn't do a damn thing, and they uh, continued to develop a nuclear arsenal. They were not under any credible military threat. So they now half of Asia is quaking in fear, and they may have the capacity soon and possibly now to reach the western seaboard of the United States with nuclear weapons. That is bad. As bad as that is, the fifth nation, Iran, is much worse. It's much bigger and stronger than uh, North Korea. It also has a theological thuggery that is governing it with this repression, and it has an ideology. They chant death to Israel, death to America, and death to all the infidels in between, and there are a lot of them. So if you want to protect the peace of the world, not only the security of Israel and the security of the Middle East, but the peace of the world. We must not allow this radical Islamic repressive regime to have nuclear weapons. Everybody will be in peril. How do you stop it? Crippling sanctions and a credible military threat. If you're not prepared to do it, you'll simply deceive yourselves with all these agreements which they either... Cheat or keep and get to a nuclear arsenal without having to do anything except wait. We must not let Iran get nuclear weapons. That's my commitment. That's my main reason for going back into the, I would say, the messy bog of Israeli politics and climbing back on Israeli's greasy pole of politics. Right, back at the top of the greasy bowl again. Uh, It ain't that much fun, believe me. Well,
3: you seem to, one, be very successful at doing it, and two, have a strong yearning to keep doing it. So there must be something about it that you find rewarding. But we've seen this extraordinary process in Iran, very brave people taking to the streets. Probably many of them have been murdered by Iranian security forces. There continues to be, it looks like, you know, serious unrest. And there are some people who think this is a pretty serious threat to the regime. How do you think that affects Uh, Again, I know I appreciate you you haven't formed a government yet, so you're not privy to all of this information, but you're a very well-informed man. You know what's going on. How do you think that affects Iran's government and in particular this issue of the nuclear program? Is it an opportunity here? Does it actually – maybe does this force Iran perhaps, as implausible as it may seem, to maybe focus more on the economic needs of its people rather than on developing its nuclear program? Or does it actually represent more of a threat to Israel in that – under pressure domestically, they may seek, you know, what often these dictatorial regimes do, which is sort of satisfaction by upping the ante in an international framework.
4: No, I don't, I don't think they seek satisfaction. I think they seek immunity from um, uh, foreign interference and maybe also the appearance of uh, invulnerability domestically by parading uh, nuclear-tipped uh, warheads uh, the way the Soviet Union did, you know, in Red Square, even though they were collapsing internally. I can tell you that there's a question now, and it's a new one. I think that these regimes succeed to survive as long as they control their stormtroopers. That is, as long as their stormtroopers are not infected by the desire for freedom, as long as they're not assaulted by their families who say, you're killing our neighbors, you're killing other people. When that happens, regimes collapse. Until that happens, they can hold on a very long time, a very long time. I would say that one of the things that really challenges a regime like Iran's, is when the citizens can have unfettered information or less-fettered information, and they know what is happening. But what is happening in Iran today is truly extraordinary, and I I must salute these brave people who are basically saying, and this is the first time they're saying it, really, since the Islamist revolution, which is close to half a century now. They're saying, down with this regime, we want freedom, and that's a reason for hope.
3: So what are Biden's reelection prospects? First term, which has underscored how much the progressive left dominates his party... With radical measures on public spending, green energy, and cultural issues like race and gender, is the country really ready for that again? Or will fear of the alternative prove successful for Biden as it was in 2020? To talk about all this, I'm joined this week by one of our most astute analysts of Democratic politics, Rita Teixeira. You, of course, famously wrote the book *You and John Judas, the genuinely seminal work in 2002 on the emerging Democratic majority, those demographic changes that were going on and that were favouring the Democrats. Now, you know, on one level, obviously, you can look at the popular vote in presidential elections. Seven of the last eight presidential elections. Have been won in the popular vote by Democrats. That does suggest there's was a lot to what you said. But at the same time, there's also been this continuously narrowly divided country, whether it's in presidential elections, you know, with the single exception probably of 2008. We've had narrow elections. We've had back and forth in midterm elections and congressional elections. It continues to seem to me pretty close to a 50 50 country. So what happened to that emerging Democratic majority, do you think?
2: Well, again, I have written a fair amount about that. But I think the. Um crispest way to put this is there was always a working class, particular white working class, Achilles heel in the democratic strategy that became known as the emerging democratic majority of the rising American electorate. And John Judas and I tried to talk about this in our book, but it was widely ignored. Given the demographic structure of the country, even though, for example, the white working class vote was declining as a share of voters, it was nevertheless huge it was super huge in a lot of key states, and if Democrats started losing more and more support among that demographic, essentially it would cancel out all the other advantages they were deriving from demographic and other changes in the country. So therefore, they needed to keep, if not a majority share, a solid minority share of the vote that was relatively stable and didn't continue declining. And basically what we saw over time is that they could not do that. Obama did pretty well in 2008. He actually improved among white working class voters. There was a lot of shifts in his favor that were quite impressive, even in difficult states for the Democrats. But it all went south starting in 2010. And by the time you got to 2016, Trump was able to be elected president on the back of shifts of white working class voters toward the Republicans. And now since then, we've actually seen white working class voters to some extent joined by non-white working class voters and being unenthusiastic about the Democrats. This is particularly the case among Hispanics. We also see it among Asians and blacks. And so you can now cut the American electorate literally by college, non-college. And it tells you a lot about what's going on in the country. If you look at the trial heats of Biden against Trump or Biden against DeSantis, it's really striking that who comes out on top depends on how big the deficit for bidenism on the working class and how big is advantages among the college educated now the working class is bigger than the college educated so you could like lose the working class by 6 points But therefore, if you do that, you need to carry the college educated by 10 points or something like that, right? I'm just making up these numbers, but you get the idea. The Republicans are now in a a loose quantitative sense, the party of the working class. So to get back to the Biden 2024 campaign, what he needs to do is make sure that deficit among the working class is not so large as it's going to cancel out his probable advantage among college-educated voters. And we'll see if he's able to do that. But that, you know, sort of in a very thumbnail kind of way is a little bit what the campaign will be about. And back to the emerging Democratic majority, that was always what the Democrats, I think, did not well understand about the opportunities they had in the early 2000s, that it, it did depend on being attentive to what John Judas and I call in our forthcoming book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Great Divide, that's opened up in the country between the college and non-college voters, particularly in key areas of the country, in the heartland, in rural, small town, and exurban America. I mean, this is the Democrats, working class people in these areas no longer see the Democrats as representing their interests in most ways and looking down on them and in cultural alien. And that goes along, of course, with the move of the Democrats toward cultural radicalism of various kinds, uh, particularly in the teens and the early 20s. So this is not exactly what we called for in the emerging democratic majority. We recommended, of course, the progressive centrism, but I don't think this is really what we had in mind. How effective do you think of Republicans been at picking up on that white working class vote? I'm particularly interested,
3: obviously, in Ron DeSantis. And we saw last November that extraordinary victory by DeSantis, a 20-point margin in Florida in what's usually a kind of a purple state. And I'm wondering what you think, what the lessons of that are in terms of what the Republicans are able to do to appeal to those and how effectively either DeSantis or Trump or anybody can be in taking that extraordinary success in appealing to that broad array of voters, how they can do that nationally?
2: Yeah, well, how they can do that nationally is another question. But we do actually talk in our book about the Florida situation as being an exemplar of how Republicans can, as you say, turn a swing state into a pretty solid red state by virtue of taking advantage of Democratic vulnerabilities on cultural issues and governing well and effectively and not treating Hispanic voters like they were, quote, people of color, unquote, but rather working class voters who want to get ahead in the world and aren't particularly culturally radical. So I think DeSantis was able to make that sale to the voters in Florida. He carried Hispanic voters by 13 points, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, will that play nationally? We'll see. I think there are a lot of pressures on DeSantis and the Republican Party in general to not only take advantage of Democratic vulnerabilities and cultural issues, but let's just say to go a little farther than might be electorally optimal on those cultural vulnerabilities. I mean, DeSantis has become ever more aggressive on some of this stuff. Probably signing the six-week abortion ban was not a great look for him, though it's not as fatal an error as I think a lot of Democrats tend to think, but it's not exactly a point in his favor. So there's a way in which there's a good chunk of the Republican Party who are very culturally radical themselves, in a sense, against the cultural radicalism of the Democrats. And if you play too much to that, I think it can become a bit of a liability. I think the second thing about that is, yeah, so Republicans are a working-class party now in sort of, on average, they are probably culturally more closer to a lot of these working-class voters than the Democrats. That's an advantage for them. But what is the program, idea, approach, whatever, that you know is going to redound to the benefit of working class voters in any more material sense. In other words, I don't think you can or should just run on cultural issues. You should run on sort of an economic kitchen table to use an abuse term program that, that people are going to see as really benefiting them. And as a contrast to the Democrats. And I think that's something there's not a lot of agreement on. Look, when Trump ran in twenty twenty, he didn't even have a platform. <laughs> so uh, this is this is a problem, and I think it will be a problem for them.
3: Let's take a look at the ongoing American cultural revolution with one of its most powerful critics, Heather MacDonald. Heather's a leading conservative commentator among the most thoughtful analysts of the various pathologies of modern American life. She's developed a particular expertise in crime and urban affairs, but she writes widely about social and political matters. And Heather McDonald joins me now. Heather, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression.
5: Jerry, it's an honour to be with you. Thank you.
3: Let's start with defining the terms of this cultural revolution that you talk a lot about in the book that we, you and I have discussed in the past, and we it occupies our minds. Um, so let's 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 start by defining the terms. And I think what's really helpful in terms of your book, um, your book uh, says how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. Let's talk about that concept of equity. Explain if you would for is what it means, how it differs from ideas of equality, and what it amounts to in practice.
5: Well, equity is the expectation that every institution should have an exact racial proportion in it that matches the population at large. And it holds that the only allowable explanation for that lack of racial proportionality is racism. So for instance, Jerry, if Google's tech workforce of computer scientists and engineers is not 13 percent black, which is the population at large in in the U.S. is 13 percent black. The only allowable explanation is that Google is discriminating against qualified black computer scientists or engineers. Or if a cancer research lab is not 13 percent black oncologists, the only allowable explanation for that underrepresentation of blacks is racism. And so we have decided that in order to engineer this racial proportionality, we will get rid of whatever meritocratic standards stand in the way of of that equitable outcome. But the fact of the matter is that what is not allowed to be said is that it is not racism that explains that lack of racial proportionality. Our standards are not racist. Our standards are not the problem. There are large academic skills gaps, which mean that you can either have meritocracy or you can have diversity or equity. You cannot have both.
3: And you point out in the book exactly to this point that so when, as you say, certain racial minorities are underrepresented in whether it's professions or academic positions or whatever else it is, the standards then under the sort of new rules by which we operate, the standards have to be changed. So we have to get rid of standardized testing. We have to get rid of minimal educational or professional criteria in order for people to have these jobs. As you say, it's essentially, it's the dismantling of the very idea of merit, isn't it?
5: It's profoundly nihilistic. The gatekeepers of our most esteemed and cherished institutions have declared a war on excellence. They have to assert that there is in fact no objective difference in skills. And that is preposterous because they have double standards at the same time that they are tearing down meritocratic standards on behalf of so-called underrepresented minorities or people of color, which is basically blacks and Hispanics. They are holding whites and Asians to, and especially Asians, to ever-increasing Demands, so they're calculating Asians' SATs or LSATs or medical school admissions test scores to the 0.00001%. I mean, you can't even put in enough zeros there because they actually know that when it comes to whites and Asians, these standards do matter. Now, Jerry, if I can just put in a disclaimer here because I know that for many people, it is extremely uncomfortable to be talking about these racial skills gaps. They, you know, white Americans are of such goodwill, they turn their eyes away. I'm talking about group averages. I'm not talking about any given individual. There are thousands of individuals in these groups that are outperforming the groups with higher group averages. So there's thousands of blacks who are outperforming whites and Asians. You can't know anything about any given individual, but we have to be talking about these group averages because the discourse of anti-racism deals with group averages and group outcomes and so if we want to fight back and preserve western civilization sorry we have to swallow hard and talk about the data
3: just to be abundantly clear, we're not either talking here, and you're not talking in your book, about innate differences in ability. And there are sort of racialized theories of educational academic ability. There are very controversial theories around that. You're not talking about that. You're saying that it is a fact that as we can see, whether it's on whether we're talking about things like educational scores, academic scores, whether we're talking about the incidence of crime, it just is a statistical fact that certain minorities african americans in particular as you say on average perform less well on academic scores than whites and asians in particular and are more represented if you like in levels of crime and you talk about this a little bit in the book too that again that, to, just to be clear we're not again this is not because of some innate characteristics there are deeper if you like sort of deeper societal And social reasons that probably explain some of these things. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well,
5: I would not say societal. I would say cultural. At this point, I do not blame society. I will say with utter lack of any kind of restraint or apology that America's history was appalling. It was appallingly hypocritical. Whites' treatments of blacks for decades was heartbreakingly, gratuitously cruel, nasty, mean-spirited, That lasted into the 1950s. The behavior of Southerners in the 1950s is simply stunning to behold. We are not that country any longer, Jerry. We can acknowledge both that we were in grotesque violation of our ideals and that we have done a 180-degree turn. Right now, the reality of our world is, frankly, Black privilege, not white privilege. I don't know of a single Black high school student applying to college who would even think of listing his race as white because he thinks that would give him an advantage. But if I were a heterosexual white male and I thought I could get away with it, I would be sorely tempted to put my race down as black because that would give me an enormous advantage in getting admitted. But I would say that the problems today are not societal. We are not systemically racist. We are not discriminating against blacks. The problem is cultural in the family, In the Black inner-city family now, you have an ethic that says that to exert academic effort is to act white. Black students who put out an effort are stigmatized. The parents or single parents are not paying much attention to whether their students are going to school. The truancy rate for Blacks is, in California, it's four times higher than that of whites. You better believe it is much, much higher than that of Asians. I have observed inner-city schools The students in those classrooms are not paying attention to their teachers. They don't take their textbooks home to study. The parents are not looking to see whether the students are at home at night studying, not running the streets. These are difficult things to talk about, Jerry, but the time for racial etiquette is over because we are now dismantling our institutions on the false premise that it is they that are to blame for racial disparate outcomes.
0: After the break, more of
2: the best of free expression with Jerry Baker. Stay with us.
5: Don't you wish your
0: life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihatprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
2: Now back to the best of free expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker.
3: Another Kennedy for president? Robert F. Kennedy Jr., scion of the first family of democratic politics, is making waves in the party's primary contest for the 2024 presidential election. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins me now. Robert Kennedy, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you for having me. One of the things I think that's appealing about your campaign to a lot of people is the criticism that you've been making stridently about a lot of the government policies over COVID, particularly the lockdown mandates, the vaccine mandates, the various other mandates. That I think a lot of people share the view that those were both unnecessary damaging and a kind of expression of a sort of a creeping authoritarianism that we see. That is so much associated with the modern Democratic Party, I must say. It was, I mean, I know we can talk about former President Trump, but obviously it has been Democratic administrations in the big states, President Biden in the early days of his administration, which did seem to be most insistent on this government mandated approach to the way in which people live our lives. Do you think that direction the Democratic Party has taken in the last few years is maybe one of the reasons why people are expressing interest in your campaign?
1: I think it's an issue that more and more Americans are understanding and are troubled by. I've pointed out that it was President Trump, and as you point out, it's kind of the uniparty when it came to lockdowns as it is to war, but it was President Trump who implemented them. And the, the thing is that President Trump knew better. He clearly voiced his reluctance, his reticence about the lockdowns and about some of the other mandates at the outset and about the moves to make sure Americans, to deny access to Americans to early treatment for example, with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which have turned out to be life-saving remedies. But of course, the Democrats then bought into that too. To me, it's not a partisan issue. It's President Trump implemented them. It cost $16 trillion to our country. It shifted wealth, $4 trillion in wealth from the middle class to the super rich. It was an attack on the poorest people in our country. We created a billionaire a day during the pandemic we allowed amazon to close down all of its competitors and rake in the cash the billionaires that had money like jeffrey bezos and that had their billions before bill gates mark zuckerberg increased their wealth by 30 percent during the lockdowns and american children lost 22 iq points a third of children are going to require remedial education up through high school And some of them will never recover from what we did to them. And, you know, we shouldn't have done it. It was a bad policy from the outset. I was criticizing those policies from the outset. You know, we should have taken the traditional path, which was outlined in the pandemic preparedness protocols by WHO, by CDC, by the European Medicals Agency, by the NHS in Great Britain. All of them agreed. You do not lock down whole populations. You quarantine the sick you protect the healthy, but you encourage healthy people to continue to go to work. The impacts of not doing that are cataclysmic. And we saw that.
3: Do you think that some of the, again, what's one of the things that's so striking about your support over these issues, such as maybe excessive corporate power, particularly government interventions, government authoritarianism, it's striking that there's some agreement here on left and right that some of these things, although despite the fact that President Trump did do many of those things. He is now voicing criticism about lockdowns. Many on the right, I think, especially, you know, Ron DeSantis and the Republican Party has made his campaign in large part about the record that he had about lifting lockdowns. There does seem to be a kind of a convergence here among your supporters, perhaps people on, you know, maybe more traditional Democratic supporters, along with this sort of so-called populist rights around some of these issues, anti-government, anti-corporates, feeling of sort of remoteness from bigness, a sense of the alienation, if you like, if I can use a term like that, of ordinary people from these big, powerful institutions. Do you think that there is a kind of almost bipartisan, do you sense that there's a kind of bipartisan convergence in that direction?
1: Yes, I do. I think there's a convergence on the left, on the populist left and the populist right. And that, you know, my dad used to look at what was happening in Latin America where you had this extreme stratification in class um, where there was huge aggregations of wealth and the oligarchy above. And then you had widespread poverty below and no middle class, and he thought that was untenable. And now we're looking at the same kind of stratification in the United States. My father was leading a populist uprising, but he would look at Latin America and he'd say, say, instead of helping the oligarchs and these military juntas share their values, the United States really needs to give aid directly to the poor to build middle classes in that country and he said and if we don't do that the communists are going to come in and they because there's going to be a revolution there's going to be an uprising people won't put up with this for so long and either the communists are going to capture that or it's going to be captured for the force of idealism i see the same thing happening in this country today i think there's enormous discontent people are desperate in the middle class in this country, the the former middle class, even people who are fairly wealthy, who live in big mansions, are living on the edge of a dead cliff. They're living lives of desperation, fear, and they all feel that they're not being listened to. And there's going to be a revolution, and somebody's going to capture that. And it's either going to be somebody like Donald Trump, I think will lead us into a dark place, or it's going to be captured by forces of idealism and,
3: you know... What does that revolution look like? I mean, what does this populist revolution how does it manifest itself? What does it result in? How does it change the way this country is run? What do you expect?
1: I think it's the dismantling of this merge this corrupt merger of state and corporate power, the end of the, you know, of the of the warfare state, of the surveillance state, the end of this permanent of uh, forever wars that we have, that America needs to start projecting, as China does, economic power abroad rather than military power, which has been a catastrophe for our country, for our national security and for the safety of Americans. We are not
3: safer because of all these military involvements. We're not more prosperous. Former GOP Speaker of the House and Mitt Romney's running mate in the 2012 presidential election. Paul Ryan joins me now. I was very struck. You said right at the beginning of our discussion, you said that our goal should be to get us back to a conservative principles and values. And I think that word back will immediately either strike a chord yeah, or an yeah, alarm yeah, bell. Yeah, so okay, or, fine. Yeah. No, no, I'm not picking you up on that. I'm just saying it's striking that you said that because I think one of the concerns that people have about Trump, there are a lot of people I think out there, Wall Street Journal readers, probably many of them, who don't like a lot of what Trump stood for and said and the way he behaved and certainly don't want nothing to do with January the 6th and all the election denial, but who did actually think that the Republican Party, and you know you were a leader in the Republican Party, you were Speaker of the House, you were the Vice Presidential nominee in 2012, had actually, for all its great strengths and advantages and virtues, had somehow lost touch with Republican voters, with ordinary Americans. We saw that, you know, when Eric Cantor lost his primary seat famously. And then we saw it, you know, in repeated defeats for Republicans. And of course, the rise of the Tea Party and everything else. And so this populism, I know, which you have trouble with, this populism arose out of a sense of dissatisfaction with where the Republican Party was going, that clinging adherence to the faith of Reagan era tax cuts, deregulation, immigration, -immigration, pro-immigration, pro-trade. I'm exaggerating here deliberately for effect, but a kind of... I'm a Reagan Republican. Yeah, I'm a class Liberal. But it became in the nineties and the early two thousands the uniparty idea that Democrats and Republicans were both in favour of globalization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were both in favour of you know immigration amnesties. They were both in favour of free trade. They were both friendly, cozying up to big business, and that that needed to change. And I wonder whether or not. And, and I think there's a fear. And when you say something like "Let's get back to, to conservative values," there's a fear among a lot of people that the trauma of the last few years we hope is past us. That passing that trauma will be seen as an opportunity by many Republicans for one of a better. Word, word in the establishment who think, oh, thank God we can go back to Reagan, Bush, no, it's, it's Romney, a, McCain, uh, whatever. It's
0: a, good, it's a great question. Actually, I've learned a lot in this whole process myself. Changed some of my own views during this process. That's a great setup and a good question. First of all, I was very pleased with the Tea Party. I was part of that Tea Party. I was disgusted with our majority that we lost in 2006. I thought we had become this bloated, earmark, big business, crony capitalism party. So I was a backbenching conservative in those days, sort of a Jim Jordan of the time. i disgusted with it. And I wanted to get back to our core roots of being a real conservative party. I come from Janesville, Wisconsin. I represent the Rust Belt. Yeah. So the people I represented, which much like the rest of the middle part of the country, lost a lot. They lost a lot in the second half of the 20th century. There are many reasons why they lost a lot, but they lost economic ground. Robots is what we always said in Jamesville because of the way the plant ended up changing there. But it was automation, technology, and in trade and displacement and immigration. The Paul Ryan of 2010 probably would not have acknowledged that, the Paul Ryan of 2023 does acknowledge right, that. Right. You know, you go through things you through life and you learn. On immigration, A, we need to um, obviously fix this broken border and all of that. And we do need legal immigration for lots of reasons, but we need to do it in such a way that we do not depress people's wages. And that's something that I think the earlier version of conservatives missed, is how do you make sure that you're not depressing wages of people who are citizens? I think we can do that. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can address labor market shortages, bring the skills that we need into the country. We do not have a real problem, so to speak. We have hardworking People from Latin America and Mexico wanting to come into our country to contribute. And that's a good thing. We align perfectly on culture. So this is a good thing, but it's got to be done right, done legally and done in such a way that it doesn't depress people's wages. That's a more nuanced view that has been informed, I think, by this reactionary populism, which was reacting to, you know, those issues Mm -hmm. on trade. I believe in free trade, but that means you need to enforce the damn laws. That means when people are cheating, when people are taking advantage of us, we're not reciprocating, then you need to do something about that. And a lot of our presidents did not do that. So I think we were taken advantage of as a country for Pax Americana, which was great for the globe, good for America. But Pax Americana became overly generous in that we didn't have reciprocal agreements. So I'm not a fan of most of Trump's trade moves. I'm a fan of some of them and most of them I'm not. But I think we have reacquired an appreciation in the conservative movement that we want more markets, we want lower tariffs, we want to expand our markets for our products. We have to do that to be a growing economy with high living standards. But I think it also requires that we make sure that our agreements are adhered to and that they're followed. So enforcement, trade enforcement, I think is is something that's a new part of conservatism that needs to be emphasized that wasn't before. So those are two little asterisks I'm putting on the Reagan 2.0 candidacy, the Reagan 2.0 kind of philosophy but are we a classical liberal party that believes in liberty and freedom and individual rights and free markets and free to choose or are we going to be a blood and soil nationalist party that has all this isolationism and is and becomes you know believes in playing identity politics
3: I'm talking with Larry Summers Summers was once president of Harvard University I'll be asking him of his concerns about the threats to free expression in American education and the growing danger of a lack of ideological and intellectual diversity on campus. Larry Summers joins me now. You were president of Harvard University, you remain a professor, obviously at Harvard University. There is clearly a kind of an intellectual ferment going on in higher education that we've seen steadily over a long period, over a generation or so, but which does seem to be accelerating in the last few years. A tendency towards the discouragement, shall we say, of dissenting views from what might be called a kind of progressive orthodoxy. People talk about cancel culture, it's a bit of an overused cliche, but the condition of many universities, including including some of our finest universities, both in the United States and in the UK, does seem to be fostering a climate of restrictions on free speech and on free expression for academics. Is that overdone? Is that something that we on the right go overboard about? Or is it someone from you, from a democratic, from a progressive democratic perspective? Is that something that you think we should be worrying about?
6: I think you on the right are highly selective in the way you frame the issue. Somehow when Governor DeSantis proposes to ban certain books from libraries, or when proposes to outlaw the teaching of critical race theory approaches, you tend to remain silent. You don't seem to recall with any vividness that your ancestors were determined to purge those who had ever attended a communist rally from American universities in the 1950s. So I think it's a grave mistake to suppose that the desire to limit uncomfortable discourse is something that's felt only on the left. I think it is felt on the left on the right and talk. on the right.
3: People on the right don't control universities, do they? Which is the primary channel in which ideas probably germinate in this country and around the world. What in Governor fairness, DeSantis does is not going to have in much In
6: fairness, effect. more students attend universities controlled by Governor DeSantis than attend... You know, Governor DeSantis can't tell can't the
3: University of Florida what to do with it. It so.
6: passes legislation talking about certain courses and certain kinds of curriculums are outlawed and more students attend the various Florida universities that attend the entirety of the Ivy League. Do you think those state universities in Florida are teaching a kind of right-wing orthodox? Certainly in the high schools, and increasingly there is pressure on state universities. So I think we will all be better on this issue if we approach it not in terms of the content that we like or don't like, but in terms of principles of openness to even debate over ideas that we loathe. And I think there is a serious problem in a number of our elite universities of ruling out in various ways perspectives that are uncomfortable. I always said to students when I was president, That if your education does not cause you a number of moments of acute discomfort, your education will have been a major failure. So I do think we should all stand up for the idea that universities should be places that revere thoughtful iconoclasm and vigorous debate, and that we'll probably be more successful in confronting these issues if we recognize that no perspective has a monopoly on sin or a monopoly on virtue.
3: This is not necessarily a completely tightly related question, but do you think it's a problem that surveys, which are pretty reliable, show us again and again and again that in major universities, and by the way, this includes state universities as well as the major private universities, the vast number of academics, the vast preponderance of academics are self-identify as liberals, as progressives, and the proportion who are conservatives is shrinking to a de minimis number. Now, that is not inconsistent with the notion that, that you would allow free speech, but is that a problem? Is the fact that we have such a heavy preponderance of people of a particular ideological disposition in charge of the teaching of our major universities. Is that in itself a problem? Jerry, I'd say three things about that. First, I think it
6: matters what field you're talking about. I don't think it really matters at all whether a teacher of introductory physics is a progressive or a conservative, but I wouldn't say the same thing about history or economics. Second, I think it's important to understand what is probably the most important social process that produces that outcome. And it's this. If you like capitalism, there are a wide range of choices open to you, including going to work for all kinds of companies. If you are hostile to commerce and capitalism, you have a much narrower range of choices. And I think that helps to explain why journalists are also disproportionately...
3: True, um, very true. Guilty as charged.
6: Progressive. So I think it would be a serious mistake to assume that this represents discrimination. But third, I do think that intellectual diversity is as important to the mission of higher education as demographic diversity, and that it's appropriate to make more efforts in our major universities to promote intellectual diversity. And that's certainly something I tried to do during my time as president of Harvard. But I do think that it is a mistake to assume that if the world operates without discrimination, every category will be represented in every activity in proportion to its proportion in the population. And that certainly applies here.
3: Well, that's it for free expression this week. Please do join us again next time. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks again.